On this episode of 1.21 Gigawatts, legendary comic book writer and editor Roy Thomas talks about his landmark projects, his relationship with Stan Lee, and more. Plus, my family gathers around the microphone to discuss the story so far on The Mandalorian. Now, straight from Samaria's loincloth outlet strip mall, this is 1.21 Gigawatts! Hey there, and welcome to 1.21 Gigawatts, episode number 46 for November 2019. I'm your host, Brad Barton. This podcast is meant to shine a spotlight on the aspects of geek pop culture that are cool and noteworthy and deserve to be celebrated. Do both yourself and myself a favor and subscribe right now at Apple Podcasts, Player FM, or SoundCloud.com to guarantee that you never miss an episode. Critics like it, audiences love it, social media can't stop posting about it, and I'm guessing the vast majority of Disney Plus's 10 million subscribers are soaking it up like rain on Tatooine. It's The Mandalorian, the first live-action Star Wars series and an instant classic that seems to be getting better with each episode. The Mandalorian tells the story of a not-otherwise-named bounty hunter who always gets his man and looks pretty awesome doing so in his lethal armor. Pedro Pascal plays the title role, and Vegas oddsmakers are happy to take your wager on whether the character will ever appear without his helmet. And his world is inhabited by various ethically questionable characters and a few allies, played by Carl Weathers, Werner Herzog, Nick Nolte, Taika Waititi, and Gina Carano. The driving creative duo on the show are John Favreau, who knows a thing or two about franchise filmmaking, and Dave Filoni, who Star Wars fans will recognize as a creative heir apparent after spending years alongside George Lucas crafting the Clone Wars animated series before also bringing Star Wars Rebels to life and becoming a beloved ambassador of Lucasfilm. As of this recording, we're three episodes into the eight-episode first season of The Mandalorian, Yes, season two is on the way, and my family has opinions. Returning to 1.21 Kikawatts is my wife, Lulu French, and our son, Scott Barton. I've been really good about not mentioning spoilers in this intro because my partner in podcasting, David Sisko, is a giant Star Wars fan but has not seen the show yet. So I don't want to get into that sequence in the second episode or the what happens in episode three and definitely not the the thing the thing you know but as we dive into this segment there will be spoilers all over the place so if you haven't watched the first three episodes of the mandalorian and are saving them for a later date then skip this discussion for now and head to the roy thomas interview it's really good i promise but for now, let's pull those hyperspace levers and make the jump to our conversation about The Mandalorian. So The Mandalorian on Disney Plus has been sweeping the nation. Social media can't shut up about how excited they are for it. And uh, when the nation is swept, so is our household. And that means a return visit from my two favorite co-reviewers of all time. Ladies and gentlemen, say hello to Lulu French. 
Hello. And say hi to Scott Barton. Yellow. Hey, that's you guys. We're a family and we watch The Mandalorian. Oh. That's nice. In fact, uh, we have even invited Lulu, uh, your mom, uh, yes. into the festivities. Uh, mm-hmm. not, not currently, but she watches with us, Mary Laura. And um, we just finished watching episode three. And at the <laughs> conclusion, she said what? I don't want it to end. I want to keep watching. <laughs> she did, which I think is sort of the feel that all of us get. Uh, is that in part because these things are like a crazy short amount of time each episode? Like 37 minutes, 32 minutes. And you will want to see what happens next. Yes, I guess the narrative tension is really what's driving that forward. Sure. Uh, the Mandalorian is interesting, I think, because... When it was announced, there was the big question of, all right, so naturally this is the first Star Wars live action on TV. Of course, that's, that's a big so headline. That's so crazy when you think about it's amazing. it. Is it crazy? Why is it crazy that it hasn't happened before now? Yeah, that it hasn't happened before now. And we've had animated series, but not live action. Yeah. So what's taken them so long? What the heck? What's going on in well, Lucasfilm? I don't know. Trying to get it right. Not wanting to disappoint the fans. Waiting for the technology to be able to do it. Lucasfilm, of course, is always pushing the technology in order to pull off stuff like this. And they seem to have done it again. Although the budget also seems to be enormous for this show. Um, and yet they are going back to some old school effects, which oh, yeah. I love because then it's honors the OT, right, with puppetry and models and gives it more of an authentic look, in my opinion, than the prequels did. All this action is all like steams and sparks, you know? (laughs) Steams and sparks. Sure, a lot of very physical production elements. Yes, yes, love it. I think one of the crazy and interesting things about this series also would be whether or not it answers the question of whether Star Wars can survive without a link to the Skywalker saga, which seems to be the weird, big, looming question over all Star Wars right now, since we are less than a month away from episode nine and what is being advertised ostensibly as the last Skywalker movie. It's the end of the Skywalker movie, and yet they have more movies announced, and everyone now is nervous about, like, are these movies going to be able to stand on their own two feet because it's not going to have any Skywalker tie? But The Mandalorian seems to be answering that question before the movies do. Sure, but other books and comic books have been doing that for a really long time, the EU and whatnot, so it's not uncommon. It's just not been introduced to mainstream yet right the mainstream yeah i i don't i don't think that's a concern too much all right no one's gonna (laughs) lose sleep in this house well the the difference lulu of course you're right everyone's been it's been written about for decades now expanding yeah who's luke let me read about quinlan voss (laughs) oh wow i'm impressed it's not like rogue one or solo were any less successful I loved Rogue One. Well, I mean, Solo was less successful. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, funny story. Interesting. Let's talk a little bit more about the quality of of this production of The Mandalorian. Can I go back a little bit? Yes, a little French. And also when you think, so people love the world. We've talked about that a lot. And with Galaxy's Edge, there's not a connection, not a super strong connection to the Skywalker story. I mean, the characters are there, but... 
right? It's just a, a land that doesn't have a direct connection to yeah, any of the movies. Yeah, that's true. I mean, there's a giant Millennium Falcon in the center of it, but but your point is still valid. <laughs> I, I don't mean to shoot a giant hole with a super laser through the middle of your No, argument. you're right. I mean, I needed to make more concessions when I said that, but I think that because it's not like, here we are on Tatooine, mm-hmm. right? No, I, th- I think you're right. And I think that that whole idea, as everyone... If anyone complains about Galaxy's Edge being along the lines of, there's not enough to do here, then of course the quick response is, the land is the attraction. And the land is not Skywalker's snacks and Leia's <laughs> lunches and, and other, Leia's lunches. other alliterative attractions. <laughs> Wouldn't it be Leia's cinnamon buns? Of course it would. Darn it. You're, an in- <laughs> You're leading the charge, French. <laughs> We're going to call it, get the Imagineers on the horn and get you a job. Uh, yeah, so Mandalorian, of course, looks awesome. And uh, Scott, who is days away ah! from visiting Galaxy's Edge in Florida. It's true. Uh, I imagine that walking through Galaxy's Edge is going to look a little bit like walking through any of these random little dusty, uh, junky towns that we're seeing in the Mandalorian. I bet you're right. Okay, so let's talk about all, all the little random bits and pieces. So there are so many references to... Uh, so many to the original trilogy, prequel trilogy, even now officially as we record this, we have <laughs> just finished watching episode three. Spoilers abound, by the way, if we have not said that yet. So let's dive into this. There are Easter eggs everywhere. We're falling over Easter eggs. <laughs> I want to talk about favorite Easter eggs. Think about it for a moment. Not just mudhorn eggs, but also <laughs> Easter, Easter eggs. eggs. <laughs> <laughs> well, in Star Wars, when it's Life Day. Yes, it would be more like a life day egg. Oh, we had a reference to life day in the first episode, which was super amazing. Yeah, so many references to the holiday special between life day and the fact that the Mandalorian's primary weapon is (laughs) this uh, shock rifle thing that was used by Boba Fett on the animated portion of the holiday special. my nerd heart sang with joy. Is that really that. the only time we've seen it on yes. the animated portion <laughs> yes. of the Christmas? That is the only special? time we have ever seen that weapon. Woo! That's a deep cut. That's a real deep cut. That they've that they've tamed and ridden blurgs, a uh-huh. mount that has been seen. You just saw on. I did because I'm going through the Clone Wars right now right. on Disney Plus. And where where were blurgs ridden? Uh, Cham Sindula and the other Twi'leks. On yeah, Lyla, baby. All right. Writing their blurgs. These blurgs are everywhere, man. <laughs> oh, they have yeah. just infested the galaxy. Uh, Jawas apparently have infested the galaxy as well, making for one of the greatest uh, action scenes I've ever seen <laughs> in Star Wars that they were able to convincingly portray a battle where Jawas could in fact beat a Mandalorian. They were kind of like the way. coconuts in Moana. Oh my God, <laughs> they bit. were the coconuts. <laughs> You're right. Um, so when, when you see these references, is this, is this fan service or do you feel good about it? Has there been a reference yet that you've thought like, ugh, you're just putting that in? No, I don't feel like it's on. pandering. I just feel like it, pff, again, it's, that it's we're in this world. Yeah, yeah. it's Star Wars. Okay. So even when uh, Kawaki and monkey lizards are being roasted on a spit, do you feel like that? Yep, this checks out. That's funny. Yeah. That's humorous. Okay, I'm going to drop one on you. We have not talked about this yet. I want to see if you notice this in episode three. 
tonight when we watched and the Mandalorian receives his payment, what does he receive his payment in? An ice cream bucket. <laughs> what? <gasps> I did not. Oh, my. <laughs> yes. It appears. Are you freaking kidding me? <laughs> if How you want a deep you know? cut. Did you know that before? Well, because uh, as anyone listening to this probably knows, the internet is trying so hard to not be spoilery about every episode and yet cannot help themselves oh but like my let's gosh. talk about episode 3 so even if it's this benign no spoilers in the title but there'll be like some key art of let's talk about that moment oh my in gosh. episode 3 and they would show like here's a picture of the mandalorian here's a picture of some other thing and here's a random picture of ice cream maker guy from empire strikes back running through the hallways like on cloud city scott you remember no, ice cream maker guy not so at like all. all the all the residents on cloud city when they're evacuating they're just carrying stuff down the hallway and one guy is carrying an ice cream maker. He's wearing an orange jumpsuit and he runs past. He's on camera for like two seconds. Yeah. When Lando is like, the Empire's taking control of Cloud City, I would advise everyone to evacuate as soon as possible. Yeah, he's, he's one of the main... Um, Will Rowe Hood, that's the character's name. And I know this. Of course he has a name. Of course, he has an action figure, Lulu. Of course he does. <laughs> an earth ice cream maker? Yes. Seemingly an yes. earth ice cream maker under his arm that he's running away with. And Dude, at Comic-Cons, there have been like groups of dudes dressed as this character, yeah. like running through carrying ice cream makers. <laughs> you see 20 of them run past <laughs> at a Star Wars celebration. It is... Uh, amazing! It's the it's a moment everyone everyone waits for, and so with this episode and they and this show seems to be doing this a few times, just sort of reinventing these weird little forgotten bits, like the fact that Vader says no disintegrations to <laughs> Boba Fett, and now we're seeing a Mandalorian disintegrate oh, yeah. people left and right. It's kind of like improv, right? You yeah. take these tiny things and blow them out. Yeah. So now we know Will Row Hood may very well have been running away with his entire family fortune inside that place. <laughs> That's true. It was a safe, obviously. <laughs> not, exactly. Everyone else in Cloud City was like, dude, they have vanilla swirl on other planets. He's like, you don't know, man. I've got so much Beskar in here. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a, it's a safe, not yeah, an ice cream it's, maker. It, wow. Yeah, I guess Star Wars made fools of us all. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Favreau. Thanks, Filoni. Um, who who may very well be the future of this franchise now? Yeah, I'm for it. Is there any way, uh, seriously, that Dave Filoni is not going to direct a feature film at some point? Oh, yeah. Or Favreau, for that matter? Ugh. Because they seem to be murdering this. They're a wonderful combination. They really are. And anytime you uh, read interviews or listen to interviews, the two of them are totally fanboying out on each other the entire time. Oh, that's amazing. I love to hear that. Yeah, Filoni, I think, absolutely considers Favreau to be a mentor as a filmmaker, the same way he studied under George uh, for 10 years of, like, Clone Wars pre-production and production. It's um, crazy. Yeah, they make a dynamic duo. Let's talk about this cast. Oh, Lordy. Who's, <laughs> oh, my gosh, guys, who's your favorite person on the show? Who's the Who's the best person? Baby Yoda. Baby Yoda. And we're not supposed to call him Baby Yoda because he's not a baby and he's not Yoda, but we still call him <laughs> Baby Yoda. That's right, because merchandising-wise, it's no fun to refer to the child. <laughs> 
capital T, capital C. Species <laughs> unknown. Yeah. Species But very unknown. much like Yoda. <laughs> and Yaddle. Whoa. What's her name? Is that what it's that's that it. her name? Oh, oh my wow. gosh. Bonus points to Lulu Fresh. <laughs> I would have gotten that wrong. Once again, I'm so sorry, Lulu. When and you help your husband write Trivial Pursuit for episode one, you know lots of random that's information. Right. That's a true statement, everyone. Go read the blog post. It's on the 1.21 Geekowatts website. Oh, God. Baby Yoda. Amazing. Um, I don't know how in the world they were able to keep this character a secret before this show hit. Everyone signed 10 NDAs. Going into this show, but the, you will be disintegrated. <laughs> be disintegrated. Oh, I know. Do your Werner Herzog. I know. Let's talk about the rest of the cast. Podcasting is a complicated profession. Hey, you Wouldn't right. you agree, my <laughs> wife and child? <laughs> he is my favorite. I'm going to say of the cast members, Werner Herzog, plucked Werner. from directing German. Uh, epics and documentary voiceovers, which I think he also does. Is he the one that did the one about the grizzly bear, grizzly man? I don't know. Oh. Uh, maybe. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna fact check that later. <laughs> right, we're not going man. to fact check it live on this. <laughs> I I love him. Um, I love that character. Uh, every time he is on screen, um, I feel like I'm watching like the third act of Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and I expect <laughs> him to be revealed as some person who's done horrible, horrible things uh, behind the scenes, which arguably, I think he's going to. I think that's his plan. Star Wars bad guys are high status, yep. evil, psychopathic, sadist, highly intelligent. That seems to be like the new they check all the boxes. vein of... Star yeah. Wars villain. Uh, British of, of some, usually they're English. Right. In this That's case, true. we're jumping over to the mainland for Werner Herzog. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and they always have to have some resume, some existing real world resume that uh, makes it seem like they're going to be extra notorious. But the rest <laughs> of this cast, also awesome. Carl Weathers, man. Oh, I don't even really care. Sorry about Carl. Sorry, Carl. Everyone really was psyched about him being cast, and in my mind, like, all right, you were in Rocky and Predator. Okay, that's cool. <laughs> oh, he was in Rocky? Yeah. Oh, who was yeah, he Yeah, he's Rocky? Apollo Creed. Oh, that's where I know Carl Weathers yeah. from. Yeah, but he's great. He's so cool in this. He's yep. he's perfectly cast. Yeah. Uh, we've seen him. Nick Nolte, also perfectly cast as an Ugnaught. Never thought I'd say those words. Uh, yeah, I still <laughs> But don't, I have spoken. So. Yeah, I know that he's associated with that character logically, but I haven't <laughs> been able to make the link in my brain yet. I need to know more behind the scenes stuff. Like, yeah, I, I almost I think need to like, different... watch him doing the voice like in front of a microphone. Then right. I'd be like, holy cow, it's, it's Nick Nolte. Um, Taika Waititi also we saw quote-unquote, saw for an episode, speaking of just providing a voice, Ugh. as IG-11. Hilarious. So funny. Such a great way. Like, that is how, that's Star Wars uh, comedy done right. Yes. Yes. When you've got this random droid, like, all character choices, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and we haven't even met a main character yet, another primary character. Gina, I like that. Gina Carano's character is yet oh, Gina to Carano. show up. Oh. So, yeah, the quote-unquote female lead of this show. <laughs> we uh, still need to see her. Uh, well, it was a great female lead as the leader. 
The armor. This is true. This is true. The armorer, of course. Which leads me to another interesting point. The idea that with this show, not only are we watching the story unfold of the Mandalorian and uh, the tiny, not baby Yoda, baby Yoda <laughs> character, but slowly sort of decoding Mandalorian culture yeah. and what that means. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. Tell me about that. What do you like, guys? Well, I have a question. Has this ever been revealed in anything before? Because I'm not as deep a Star Wars fan as you, Brad. I haven't read the comics. Um. Says the woman who just dropped Yaddle on us. Yeah, well, yes, for sure. Mandalorian culture has been deeply explored in books especially, not all of which have I read, so I can't comment super intelligently. But like a Mandalorian language has been developed. Out there, you know that there are Mandalorian mercs, that's a cosplaying group, that could walk up to you and probably say a complete sentence in Mandalorian. Jeez. Mando-ah. Mando-ah. I think that's the name of the language. I I'm always wrong. like, when I hear about that, like partially impressed and partially sad. <laughs> <laughs> it's like 50-50. 50-50. All right. Fair enough. So so the answer is yes, they've really developed the culture, but a lot of it was in the old expanded universe, so I really don't know what counts mm-hmm. anymore. But Because the old EU is out? What's that again? Come on, nerd boy. Legends is now referred to as Legends. Is that what you mean? Yeah. I will. Yeah. Tell you, tell me. It's out. Tell you, tell me. <laughs> but, I mean, they're slowly bringing a lot of it back because a lot of it was gold. Well, a lot of it was. And, and Scott, you might actually be able to answer this question Ooh. almost better than me right now because you are smack in the middle of watching Clone Wars. That still is in canon. Yes. And they did a ton I've, with Mandalore. I've only seen a little bit of Mandalore so far. Okay, uh, and we've seen a lot of we've seen some Mandalorian culture on Star Wars Rebels as well, and that oh, still yes, remains that's true. firmly within canon. So you know the warrior clan society that's always sort of been part of it. Yeah, uh, but a lot of it now is just building out the mystique of the armor, which is really what has kept Mandalorian stuff going for so long. True, because of Boba yeah, Fett. this this is a. Totally different Mandalorian culture than what we've seen before. It's seems to be. Yeah. Right. And yeah. after the Great Purge. The Great Purge. Was the Great did the Great Purge happen to the Clone Wars? Is that what we're getting from episode three? That was a super battle droid that almost took that kid out. Oh yeah. And like a separatist gunship or something. I have the I internet right. to thank for that. I would never have been able to identify that ship so fast. Wait, a separatist gunship? Some ship but, flies yeah. over and strafes them all when ah when they're running for their lives which, in which one is that? The Mandalorian's flashback. Well, in this case, it's a like a big circular thing in the front. That's not important. You're just it's gonna have to take my word on this. Uh, point is it looks like separatists were taking out that yes. family. So how old is the Mandalorian? Whatever. We'll figure out. We're gonna do the math on that. <laughs> um, so in conclusion, some other random little bits and pieces that I think are sort of cool and going on with episode three and director Deborah Chow, that is the first female director who's ever directed Star Wars live action. Holla. And she will be taking the helm for the Obi-Wan live action series that's coming. She'll be the showrunner. Yes. Are we excited about Obi-Wan and the Cassian Andor series now? Oh yeah, Cassian. I forgot about that. Cassian. Yeah, Cassian and K2. Oh, nice. We'll both be back since it's a prequel show because you know... 
it has to be a prequel <laughs> show. Mm, sad. Sad times. But no, because mm. first we're going to get a series. Uh, and we're going to get a second season of Mandalorian as well. That's already mm. been announced, which makes the fact that this is only eight episodes long go down a little oh, bit smoother. Man. Jeez, and they're so short, too. And they're so short. Oh, boy. I'm, I'm actually sure. a little bit nervous as we for sure wrap things up. Almost a little bit nervous about the fact that we're less than a month, maybe three weeks out from Rise of Skywalker. We are living in a world where a new Star Wars movie is going to be in theaters the same weekend as a new episode of The Mandalorian on TV. And Mandalorian is so good right now. I'm actually a little scared that Rise of Skywalker may not oh, be able to rise. Oh, come on. No way, man. Oh, of course. It will. Yes. Lulu. Will yes. it be okay? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, did you like the previous two films? I did. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of the internet does not. Well... A vocal minority of the internet. Okay, well, screw them, right? There's always going <gasps> yes. to be Hot takes. a minority who's really freaking vocal, uh, right? Because they're I don't just know if like that's a minority though of Ugh. people that don't like the Last Jedi. <laughs> I haven't, I haven't found another person that likes Last Jedi, in that Columbia High School. I'm the only one out of all the people I've spoken to. Teenagers are haters. Well, I think we're ending on a really positive note, and I'm really excited <laughs> we don't now. We have to end. <laughs> oh, man. Is there something else that we like to like talk about? I don't like to then? feel like I have to defend my when I enjoy something, <laughs> you know? It's like, those were great experiences for me. And yes, I, was, I saw the original films, so I have connection to these characters <laughs> in a very deep, nostalgic way. So that does affect me, and I am biased because of that. They're highly enjoyable films. The action sequences are amazing. The characters are fantastic. I'm just like, I'm on the edge of my movie chair, right? And I'm just like, ah! And Kylo Ren and the, 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 the I mean, Han Solo, I mean, what the? <laughs> what, what was that comeback that the Stormtrooper used? It was like, um... Mandalorian was like, no, you smell. Yeah, you take it easy. That's what he said. <laughs> take it easy. No, you take it easy. <laughs> I love those filthy stormtroopers. Uh, well, yeah. rest, so rest in peace. Expendable. Rest in oh. peace, filthy stormtroopers. That's right. You're all done now. Just like that Kowakian monkey lizard oh. spinning on a spit. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> delicious. Delicious. All right. So uh, episode four is going to be upon us pretty soon. Then we're going to be halfway yep. through the Mandalorian. Oh, man. Uh, but it's exciting to know that there's more and that there's season two. And it gives me great, great hope for the next live action stuff mm. on Disney+. Plus. Um, Ooh, hope. Didn't Carl Weathers say something like, you are, o you are our only because hope? Because I'm your only hope. Oh, he said, I'm your only hope. Well, still. What was that in I, context, too? Uh, you're going to put that child down on the cart, and then you're going to back away The speeder. Oh. Hey, why should I trust you? Because I'm your only hope. Nice. I like that. Just sliding that right in. Yep. All right. Um, well, <laughs> as the Star Wars mythos has always shown us, help me, Carl Weathers, you're my only hope, uh, <laughs> has never been truer than at this moment. So um, 
any final words, anything that uh, you would like to say about The Mandalorian before we sign off? Scott, how about you? Mm, I'm good. I've spoken. <laughs> you have spoken. <laughs> you did it. How about you, Lou? I think one of the reasons I love Baby Yoda so much is also because Scott is always going, oh. I think that's your mom sitting next to you. (laughs) Oh, it's you. (laughs) America loves Baby Yoda. And by America, we mean Scott Barton. And by Scott Barton, we mean everyone in our house. True. I got to say the subtitles on this thing are not super accurate. It's always saying that the child is cooing, but the child is not cooing. It's making no sound at all. That's right. We watch it on subtitles because my mother needs the subtitles. And yeah, the child doesn't coo as much as the subtitles say it does. Yeah, the subtitles, right. If you, were, if you were just going by the subtitles, you'd think, that kid does not shut up. <laughs> that kid is, that baby Yoda, not baby Yoda, is constantly cooing. <laughs> what I like about the subtitles is that we learn a lot about uh, the aliens also. So meanwhile, the internet is like, was that a reek in episode two? That's the reek, right? From episode two. Mm-hmm. That's the reek. Like, it is not. It's called a mud horn. Yeah. The subtitles <laughs> keep telling us that. That's right. It's mud horn. <laughs> so watch the subtitles. Who knew what yeah, you can you, learn? You pick up the vocabulary a lot more. Yeah, That's true. all the character names mm-hmm. and every single grunt. <laughs> <laughs> Indistinguishable chatter. Alien grunts in an alien language. It's called Hatties, okay? It's Hatties. Uh, <laughs> you know, on the subtitles for New Hope, it did say Hatties. Yeah, it did. Oh, oh, man. We got to make some calls. We got to write, write to our senators about the most important thing senators have to think about these days. Is the Mandalorian subtitled correctly? <laughs> All right. On that note, uh, before Lulu can swear again, either in English or in Hatties, Ichuta. Or Mandalore. Oh, sad. <laughs> then we'll sign off. I'm going to write to my Senator Palpatine and tell him what I think about this. Oh. He's going places, that kid. (laughs) Bye. The ways that people enter the comic book industry are never the same route twice. Roy Thomas was an English teacher in the early 1960s before he became the editor of the comic book fanzine Alter Ego. Between the magazine and a deep knowledge of comic books, Thomas entered the comic book industry in 1965, briefly at DC and then at Marvel Comics, where he would become a writer, then an editor, then editor-in-chief beginning in 1972, succeeding Stan Lee himself in that position. Either as a writer or as an editorial guiding force, Roy had a role in creating the following. Ready? Wolverine, Ultron, Luke Cage, Iron Fist, Ghost Rider, Carol Danvers, aka the first Ms. Marvel and the current Captain Marvel, Morbius the Living Vampire, Valkyrie, Banshee, Red Sonja, Sunfire, The Invaders, Adamantium even. Wolverine does not have unbreakable claws without Roy Thomas, it's true. And this is just a tiny slice of the list. I interviewed Roy back in June at the Garden State Comic Fest in Morristown, New Jersey, and this interview would not have happened without Eric Balomo, my partner in AV shenanigans at the Garden State Comic Fest, and Roy's manager, John Cimino. Very grateful to both of them for this rare one-on-one opportunity to speak with the great Roy Thomas. Hey there, I'm Brad Barton from the 1.21 Gigawatts podcast. We are at the Garden State Comic Festival, and it is my great honor to be sitting with someone whose impact 
at Marvel Comics, at DC Comics, and comics in general has been seismic. He's looking around. Who are we talking about? It's Mr. Roy Thomas. Uh, Roy, thank you so much for the time. It's my pleasure. Um, uh, you know, what? one of the things that I enjoy so much about your story is that you absolutely, as so many did, of course, but you absolutely came to this industry as a fan, first mm -hmm. and foremost, um, reading comics way, first, way back. First and foremost, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. what, uh, what were the comics that really captured your imagination as a kid and then ultimately led to writing lots of letters and alter ego and all that good stuff? Well, as a kid, uh, starting at the age of you know four, evidently, when I was four, in fact, <laughs> I know it was, uh, I saw some comics, probably stuff like Superman and Batman on a drugstore in my small Missouri hometown. And my mother had not grown up reading comics, obviously. There really hadn't been many comics then. It had been depression. They wouldn't be able sure. to buy them if, uh, if it had been. So she didn't know what they were, but she bought me some along with the children's books and all the others. And so I sort of learned to read on them. Yeah. My first, and one of the, the big experiences that I had, that, that first real breakthrough, although I loved all the various characters, I quickly got into, in the, over the next year or so, the, 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 the timely characters like, like Captain America, and Human Torch, Submariner, yeah. Captain Marvel. But the thing that I liked the most, and again, I did see this by the time, before I was five years old, before I could read, uh, was the Justice Society of America in yeah. All-Star Comics, which I was fascinated by uh, even before I could read the comics. Uh, because I was amazed by the, the the idea of these six or seven characters getting together, that they knew each other. Because all the other, idea, sure. most of the other, because there weren't many teams. Nowadays, there have been a lot of teams in comics, but at that stage, there were virtually none. I mean, there, there, uh, the Marvel family was just barely starting out as a team, right. but that's really the same character almost. You know, <laughs> three versions of the same right. character. Right. Never saw the couple of issues of I, that I know of of the All Winners Squad. You know, I would have liked them if I did, but I don't remember that, that I saw them. But the thing about the Justice Society, since I was five, four, four and a half, five years old, was that, you know, suddenly you had all these great characters that I already liked in stories, like yeah. Hawkman and Flash and Green Lantern, especially, and the Atom I liked because he was short and I was small. <laughs> and uh, the, these were suddenly palling around with each other and having these great adventures, they'd go off and they'd get back together. And that had a real appeal to me, yeah. which it, uh, never lost, which is why I ended up writing group comics at DC and Marvel uh, so often, I suppose. Do you, do you think, in a way, is that also why uh, I'm jumping way now, decades ahead in, in your career, but um, you obviously had a bit of a fixation or an interest in World War II as an era, hence mm -hmm. the Invaders for Marvel yeah. and uh, Justice Society, but All-Star Squadron and then Young All-Stars. Um, why did you enjoy coming back to that time period so much? What, what interested you about that? Well, it's it's hard to say exactly because uh, it wasn't like I always had a fascination reading about World War II growing up, but they had. But since I was really coming into consciousness at the age of five or so, just about the time World War II was ending, uh, there were a lot of remnants of it. I'd had an uncle who'd been off and brought home a, a hand, a, you know, a, a non-exploding hand grenade he gave me that I would throw at people. Here. Yeah, right, and. Uh, you know, and, and there were still games around that had people shooting down zero airplanes yeah, and yeah. things. So it was kind of kind of in the air. And I was always, and I would find an old comic from, you know, from three or four years earlier. I remember uh, a Superman or a Captain Marvel Jr. comic that uh, some uncle or grandparent would have, would have lying around the house and I would mm -hmm. see it. And I became fascinated with the idea that there had been these comics during that war. And, yeah. I, you know, it was, you know, unlike today, I, I had a, I think there was a sense of history kind of imparted in school that you don't have as much now. 
Uh, and uh, I knew all the time that there had just been this fantastic war. Soon I learned there had been another one before that. And that, dur and, and, and that during that time, the superheroes had been at their most popular, which kind of fascinated. And that was the period either then and right before, starting in like 38 with Superman, uh, that you had all these superheroes coming into existence and then suddenly they're fighting the Nazis, fighting the Japanese yeah. and, uh, you know, and some of them like Captain America seem to be born to fight in a, in a war right, because of, of the patriotic kind of costume and there were still a number of, a few of those left when I started reading. Yeah. So all this stuff just combined, uh, I, I mean, I didn't really make up the idea of doing a comic like that until I was looking for a comic in 1974 and 75, right after I stepped down as editor-in-chief of Marvel. I was looking for something that would enable me to use some nice Marvel characters and at the same time keep me out of the mainstream so I wouldn't have to be constantly coordinating things <laughs> with other writers. Sure. This Smart. way I could do Captain Smart America, move. the Human Torch, and the Submariner, but I could do them right. and I didn't have to ask You don't have to worry about anyone else's continuity. What they were yeah. doing with them. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. and so that was that was part of it too. That plus my growing interest in World War II and right. especially the home front aspects of right. it. Right. Uh, I realize we're probably jumping all over your career with this, but you mentioned stepping down as the uh, editor-in-chief from Marvel. You, mm -hmm. of course, were the first editor-in-chief following Stan Lee, right. um, which had to have been an interesting uh, moment, if for no other reason, because we're sort of making up a job and making up the rules, or maybe that Stan had to formalize or try to train someone in things that I suspect yeah. that he was sort of making up as he went along. Because by that time, Stan had been the... Uh the term editor-in-chief hadn't existed before yeah. I had it, but I mean, it was the same thing. Sure. But Stan had been the editor of the company for the past 30 years, yeah. except for the couple of years when he was in the service, and, and it was well understood that he was returning that job when it was over, right. even though somebody else held it for those couple, two or three years. And so, uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, what it really was, it was really more like a glorified shop foreman, I think, as much <laughs> as anything else, because as long as Stan was there, I wasn't going to be, nor was I particularly trying to be, uh, a, a full editor-in-chief, you know, mm -hmm. independent of Stan. And why should I be? He's, he was put in the job as, pu as publisher yeah. and president because he knew what he was doing. Of course. He and I were more or less on the same page, especially in the early, you know, days. So, you know, it, it, I naturally just, we didn't have a lot of, it wasn't like I was trying to assert independence from him. There would be things I'd be trying to do that I'd be trying to do things that he wouldn't have necessarily done. That's yeah. kind of inevitable. But he, gave, he was encouraging in a lot of those. You know, when, when I, it was not Stan or even I who came up with the first idea for a Kung Fu comic, for example, or some of the other kinds of books we did. Uh, Conan was partly his. I mean, the idea of doing a sword and sorcery here sure. because people were writing and telling us to do it. Uh, but, in, but we were, and I was, and then I would try to do science fiction, which didn't always sell that well, but I was trying to do that. And some of the ideas would be his, and some of them would be mine, more his maybe than mine, but we, but we both had a lot of them. Mm -hmm. And we, we worked together pretty well as a team, uh, except that gradually I just became a little more, a little dissatisfied at the idea of, I don't know, I was spread so thin with 40, 50 sure. titles a month, sure. even though I had help from... Marv Wolfman and others and doing the black and whites in particular, it was just too much to handle. And I found it kind of unsatisfying. And uh, so that over a period of time, I just gradually became disillusioned with the job and finally decided it was time to, you know, to, uh, to quit and move on. And I was, my plan was actually, I thought since Stan and I had come to a disagreement at the time, I, I thought I'd probably go over to DC right away because I'd had job offers from there for the last few years. And I, you know, to come over and write and edit, whatever. But 
uh, Stan notices, I don't want you to leave. Just because we, you know, we had this little trouble, I want you to stay. You know, I want you to stay. And I said, okay, as long as I'm the writer and the editor, so I'm my own boss subject to you, yeah. I'll stay. He said, yeah. well, you know, the other, the other editors, they're not going to get in your way because they like your writing. It just doesn't matter. I said, yeah. I, I'm either a writer editor, not right, under the editor chief, or I go. Yeah. You know, so he said, okay, then we'll make up the contract. So I did that, and that's the way I was for the next six years. Yeah. And when that situation was changed, I just left. There you go. There you have it. Um, there are two titles specifically at Marvel that I'd, that I'd love to touch on. Yeah. Um, you mentioned one of them, of course, Conan. So the idea of, of sword and sorcery had been floating mm -hmm. around. But, um, but of course, you're largely credited for, for that getting off the ground. I assume because you were aware of Conan as a property and thought, you know, this might be the answer. Yeah, but it wasn't Conan as such so much. I mean, I'd bought the books, but I hadn't really read them at first for <laughs> two or three years. I bought them for the Rosetta covers, and I didn't really get into sure. them. Uh, but the thing is that eventually, really, it was Stan as much as anybody who wanted to do the books, not necessarily Conan, just a sword and sword. Sure. He didn't know anything about Conan or yeah. whatever, but, and he'd never read any of them. But he, we were getting letters. Uh, one was to do a Conan-like character, a sword and sorcery character. To, and, and, they, and a lot of the letters were specifically not saying so much, make up your own, as why don't you get one of those characters? Because it's strange. You thought we'd have made up our own character that Marvel would own. And yeah. maybe they would have, but that probably wouldn't have been as good because how would you have made up a character as good as Conan? I right. couldn't have done it back then, and I don't think Stan could have. Uh, but uh, you know, when, but we and we they were saying do Doc Savage that kind of thing, which was being reprinted. Sure. Do do the Burroughs characters. Yeah. We tried to get that and Tolkien. Eventually, we did get everything except the Tolkien. We made, Marvel eventually did get over the next couple of years, at least for a brief period. But finally, uh, it just happened that while we were trying to get another lesser character that we thought we could afford, suddenly that was being kind of stalled. So I suddenly went after Conan directly yeah. by writing the letter to the guy down in Texas who, <laughs> who was the literary agent for the state. And he bought my premise that we couldn't pay much money, but it might bring a better audience, a bigger audience to Conan right. by having him reach new people, which then would be good for the other book sales. Sure. Yeah. And it, it, it seems to have worked out that I way. I think so. It's yeah. it's and it, and it became very important to the movie because at the time the movie really got off the ground, the uh, the company, Lancer Books, that had published the Conan stories was in Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Uh. So there were, for a couple of years, there were no Robert E. Howard books, new books coming out of the stands, and yet, and the comics kind of kept that right, idea right. alive. Keep it alive yep. But of course, in the end, the uh, the real Conan is not mine or Arnold Schwarzenegger's or El Sprague de Camps or anybody else, but just the character that Robert E. Howard sure. created. Every all the rest of us were just kind of playing, <laughs> playing in, sand. in the sandbox. Yeah, yep, playing yep. in the sandbox. There you go. There yeah. you go. The uh, the other title that I wanted to mention that I know uh, you had a pretty uh, significant impact on was when um, you decided to take a meeting with a young filmmaker named George Lucas who was shopping around an idea for a comic book adaptation and no one was necessarily biting at it and of course this is Star Wars and as the legend goes that had a lot to do with helping keep Marvel afloat at yeah, the time by yeah by accident yeah uh, it wasn't but it wasn't George it was actually his uh, his right hand man or media projects director a, a young man then young man named Charlie Lippincott oh sure yeah who uh, through my friend uh, through a mutual acquaintance Ed Summer who had a comic store in New York uh, said, I've been trying to reach Stan and I can't get through to him, but you know, we got this movie and, and, and I knew George, I had met George Lucas about a year earlier. We'd okay. had dinner together, uh, he and I and a couple other people. And, but, and I'd heard of the Star Wars the project at that time with sure. the word the still attached, yes, the, course, Star Wars. the Star Wars. <laughs> but 
But I didn't pay that much attention. They, it was obviously at that time still a, a concept in search of an exact story. They didn't mm. have the story. That was still when Han Solo was going to be a seven-foot amphibian, yeah. you know, yeah. maybe. And uh, so I didn't pay too much attention to it. It had nothing to do with me. But th when, when Charlie brought in these what they call production sketches, but were really full paintings by Ralph McQuarrie. He had a dozen or two of them that to sort of told us, and he'd stand there, you know, flipping them yeah. over and telling me the story. My head was spinning with all the names, R2-D2, you know, C-3PO, you know, uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Right. I mean, Chewbacca the Wookiee. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know. What are you saying, Lippincott? But, you know, so I, but, but, but then when he flipped over this one, uh, that what they called, what he called even then, the cantina sequence, which is mm. Han Solo, not yet. Beautifully framed Ford, image, yep. Look, looking about to slap leather with an alien. Then I realized this wasn't really the kind of science fiction I was thinking of. This was like space opera, like planet comics that I had loved yeah. or planet stories that I used to buy occasional copies of. It was like rockets, ro ray guns, robots, things like that. And I thought, well, you know, that didn't always sell in comics either, but we'd have a shot with something like that. And this was the director of... Uh, American Graffiti, which at that yeah. time was still one of the ten, for a few years, was one of the ten best, biggest grossing pictures of yeah. all time for a while. Now it's way down there, but you know, <laughs> but it was pretty good. So, I said, you know, I'll take a shot. So, so uh, I got a, arranged a meeting so Charlie and I could meet with Stan and and uh, the president and so forth and and so forth and the circulation director. And we ended up, you know, Charlie and I played a little tag team. I would say something. Charlie did the main spiel, and they were, we, we could do it for free, you know, and everything like that. We just had to have two or three issues out before the movie mm -hmm. to publicize it. And, they, and it turned out we did, and they sold out well. And it turned out that I don't think that the movie, the comics did the movie much good. I think that if the comics hadn't existed, I think some people went to see it because of the comics. Sure. We sold a few hundred thousand sure. copies. But I think it would have been as big a hit anyway. But it turned out to be very important for Marvel because... Yeah. Because which, the wave which, was a tsunami, sure. It, yeah, because they, they were going through a difficult period trying to adjust to the loss of the mom-and-pop stores, the dive stores, the drugstores selling comics, yeah. and the spectacular sales, especially after the movie came out, and then they're reprinting the comic over and over, and they've got a regular monthly issue t thing going for, and everything, that it bought them that year to a time to make some adjustments. And I have to, you know, I never really even knew this until... Uh, Jim Shooter, my, uh, you know, a later editor-in-chief, began to write about it on his blog. I knew a little of it, but he made it very clear because he had been there at that time as the editor-in-chief. He took over at the beginning of 78, you know, right at the end of that. He knew how important that book was more than I did. So mm -hmm. I, I thank him for, uh, you know, for bringing that to light. For sure. So I'm very happy to, that Charlie and I had a hand in saving Marvel Comics, but it was not what we set out to be. We didn't know <laughs> we course. needed to, we didn't know we were saving Marvel Comics. Yes. And so it's just a happy accident. Happy really. accident. Yeah. Um, at, Marvel Comics had saved me, so maybe if I if I could help return the are, favor, even are. by accident, I was happy to do Karmically, that. or the Force, if Something you will, like right. Don't, not the Force, I don't like the Force. That's the one part <laughs> of Star Wars I never liked the Force, I hate the Force. <laughs> well, then we'll stick back to Karmically. Okay. We're, we're, yeah. A favor was done either way. So as as we wrap up, um, I uh, I know that uh, recently you've gotten a fair amount of press or notoriety in not a way I'm sure that you would have liked, which is one of the uh, the the last people to, to see Stan yeah. before he passed passed away and so many people talk about I mean the world owns Stan now because mm -hmm. of his movies and the comics and everything but of course he's you and know he was for sale <laughs> you know, that's and he'd was, probably be the first to was, say it. Yeah, that's that's what he always wanted. He wanted to be a celebrity. He wanted to be an actor, and he, and he became one. You know, sure, he was, he sure. Various cameos. Yeah. 
I, uh, I, I, I don't know if you necessarily get this, but I know, of course, to you, he was also a coworker and a friend, so my condolences on the passing of your friend. Well, thank you. Yes. Um, that uh, had to have been sort of, I mean, I know that when you sit with him at, at these moments, like, it's just another afternoon visitor. You were shooting a documentary at that time, but... Um, no, we, we just went out to visit him. We weren't... All right. We, we took... You, know, uh, you shot, yeah. Yeah, John Cimito, my, my friend and manager, he yeah. took, a, took a couple of pictures, and somebody took a picture of the three of us together. Yeah. But basically, we didn't go there. We weren't filming anything. I was working this book about him, but we didn't need to do yeah. that. It was simply a visit that... I felt I wanted to make if he was up to it, even if it meant flying across the country for several hours uh, in order to, you know, with a stopover at that, in yeah. order to, for a meeting that was not going to last even a half hour and might not never ever take place. I might get there and he didn't feel well sure, that day. Sure. So, you know, I was taking a chance, as was John flying from Boston. Yeah, yeah. But I was just willing to do it. I felt he had meant so much to me. I had wanted to see him and almost got to come see him a month or a couple of months earlier. So I wanted, I just wanted to see him. I thought, I figured it would probably be the last time, but yeah. I didn't necessarily know that he was going to pass last, away sure. less than 48 hours after yeah. we were, were there. Yeah. But he was basically ready, you know, he was ready to go. I mean, sure. it wasn't like he was sad about it. He, you know, he could joke about how, you know, this living to be a hundred isn't as much fun <laughs> as I had hoped it would be. But, you know, and, and after about 20 minutes, it was clear that his, his energy was kind of waning and so forth, so we didn't want to overstay our welcome. But yeah. I think it did him a little good. I know it did me good, good to see him. We were never close friends or anything like that. I was basically a, a valued employee, but yeah. somebody that he liked a little better, I think, than the average employee. And, uh, you know, he felt I had helped him out, and I know he had helped me out. We, yeah. we had both been there for each other. And, uh, and you know, it, it's it's I, I really feel odd that to, to think back of the fact that through again the happy accident of my not liking the job at DC Comics <laughs> that I had for a couple sure. of weeks that I ended up drifting into a situation where I yeah. became sort of the number two editorial guy to the best writer and editor in comics and the yeah. you know and the the major creative force with all due respect to the wonderful Jack Kirby and even Steve Ditko the main force that 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 propelled that, conceived, that engine forward that conceived sure. the idea of the the Marvel Universe yeah. even if he was not the only person adding sure. to it creatively because he couldn't have done it without especially Jack. Right. But still, he was the guy that held it together even when Jack was gone and continued to grow and, and so forth and he, because of his, of his vision, and which evolved over time. It wasn't something he started out with. It's something he gradually evolved and yeah. he kept rolling with the punches. If one thing didn't work, he'd try something else. And he built a, uh, an edifice that now has kind of taken over the world here. And, yeah. It doesn't matter if the next Marvel movie is a total bomb and nobody yep. ever goes see another one. There's been 20-something films in a it's row okay. just in the Marvel Universe, yep. not counting the, the others from other companies, yeah. 30 or, or more movies in the last just two decades yeah. that have made zillions of dollars between them. Uh, and while money isn't the only measure of things by a long shot, it does show how, it, it, it does show how popular they sure. are. And, and it's a, it's a, it, it's, and you know, Money's the way of keeping score. I mean, I know <laughs> sadly, yes, people yeah. want to. People want to. Well, I don't even think it's sadly. I'm a very economic, you know, <laughs> okay. oriented person, and I'm, I'm a thoroughgoing capitalist. You sure. know, uh, and I think that you know, uh, money is how is in our society kind of you know how you keep score, and you know there that doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of other things too. I mean, I love those characters. I love the thing ever since the moment I saw him in particular. I've loved some of the other characters since the 40s. Yeah. But I've just been very happy to be a, a part of it. You know, a, a, you know, a, a sometimes minor, sometimes quasi-major part sure. of it. 
Uh, and, it, you know, being in the shadow of Stanley, he wasn't too bad because he no. had a big enough shadow you could stand <laughs> in and still have plenty of room to do your own thing. Yeah. And he made it possible for me, and I'll always be grateful to him for, for that. For sure. Well, I'm sure that he was grateful for that visit, and I am grateful for the time and grateful that you have been part of that, uh, that tapestry of comics uh, over the decades. Much. It's Thank been a great pleasure. You. Thank you so much. Bye. Have a great show. Bye. That's it for this episode of 1.21 Gigawatts. Many thanks to my guests Roy Thomas, Lulu French, and Scott Barton. Special thanks also to Dave O'Hare and Sal Zerzolo at the Garden State Comic Fest and Eric Balomo for recording this episode's interview. And thanks, of course, to you for inviting me into your podcast feed to nerd out. It means more to me than you know, truly. I'd love to hear what you think about this latest audio adventure. What do you like and what deserves diaper-changing duties for the latest batch of clone trooper babies on Camino? There are new clone batches gestating all the time. They're so cute when they're little. You can tell me by leaving me a message at one of the show's social media channels. They are the 1.21 Kikawatts Facebook page, where you can follow and discuss the latest film, TV, comic book, and genre entertainment news. On Twitter, I'm at 121Kikawatts, and on Instagram, I'm 1.21 underscore Kikawatts. Plus, you can find all of those feeds at the 1.21 Kikawatts website. It has photos, blog entries, every episode to date, newsletter sign-up information, and more. Get the to 121kikawatts.com and wallow in the nerdliness. Hey, did you know that every episode of this podcast is available for free at Apple Podcasts? It's so easy to subscribe and never miss a geeky second. And while you're visiting Apple Podcasts, you can help us out. Whether you're a subscriber or not, please rate and review the show, especially if you have something nice to say, because that will help more like-minded listeners find the show. It should take 30 seconds. Please, please, please. If you're not an Apple Podcasts user, you can also find us at SoundCloud.com or on Player FM. You're probably listening to my voice right now, thanks to one of those platforms. Browse the other episodes listed there and check out another one. I'll even make a recommendation for you. If you enjoyed this episode's interview with Roy Thomas, I encourage you to check out episode number 34 when I spoke with another legendary comic book writer, Marv Wolfman. He's another creator who has a mountain of characters and projects that are like a greatest hits list for the entire comics industry. That's episode number 34 of 1.21 Gigawatts. Give it a listen as soon as you finish this one. Huge gratitude to my co-producer, composer, sound designer, and Star Wars fan counting down the days until the rise of Skywalker. The greatest teacher failure is... David Sisko. You are and remain the best, Cisco. Dear listener, if you enjoyed this travel-sized chunk of geekitude, please share it with a nerdy friend. You can follow, like, etc. all of those social media accounts mentioned a few seconds ago and let people know that you're listening. I'm Brad Barton, and until next time, here's nerd rock band H2Awesome rocking out with the 1.21 Gigawatts theme song. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Socks. 1.21